morning. I have a couple announcements today, and the first is big news for any of you who signed up for our Gender, Sex, and Gospel Conference this upcoming weekend. Uh, if you follow Sean McDowell online, you know that he's been having some health issues, and he just found out on Thursday night that he has to have an emergency surgery. And so he called us and let us know that it's not possible for him to come next weekend like he was planning. Uh, we've built uh, a friendship with him over the years, and so Sean still, he still really wants to come and visit and, and share on this important topic. And so he rearranged his schedule uh, as soon as he possibly could, and Andrew Walker, our other speaker, did as well. And so the big news is that there's no conference this weekend, um, but we have moved it and rescheduled it to Friday night, December 8th, and Saturday morning, December 9th. And so uh, everyone who is registered, you'll get uh, an email soon with all of those details. And our plan is currently uh, to include a link in it for anyone who wants to get a full refund. Uh, but people don't have to sign up again if they've already signed, signed up once. Um, but there, again, it's a link if people uh, can't make those new dates work or don't want to go for any other reason. And so I'm very thankful that our speakers could find another date to come. And, and I hope that that will still work for all of you who are planning to attend. If you have any questions about the conference or the change, just let me know or also look online for, for up to, updated information soon. Uh, second, our Trunk or Treat event is two weekends away, so October 28th. And again, last year we had over 500 people from the community come. And so we're going to need dozens and dozens of people to, to help us to maximize that time in a wide variety of roles. And uh, if you'd like to, uh, like to volunteer, you could follow that QR code there. We're hoping to have at least 15 trunks uh, decorated, uh, but we're also going to need help with setup and teardown, uh, hot chocolate and refreshments, parking, greeters, all kinds of different roles. And so uh, if you're willing to help in any capacity, you can talk to Julie Weeks. You can follow the QR code on the, on the screen to, to register to help, sign up to help. One final thing to just mention briefly is that you ladies will want to get November 11th on your schedule because that is the Saturday night of the Women's Coffee House. And so more details to come, but that's uh, always one of the, the most popular events of the year. And so uh, you can get that on your calendar now, November 11th. That's it for announcements. And so it's time now for the reading of God's Word. So please give your full attention to our passage in Romans for today. Romans 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think, any one of you who judges those who do such things, yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who go by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the opportunity to come together and worship you. 
And I pray that as we come to church and really in every area of our life, that the clear priority would be to glorify you and to honor you and, and to draw closer to you. God, as we have another heavy passage of Scripture this morning, I, I pray that you would use this to help us to understand you and understand your heart more clearly. God, I, I pray you'd use it not just to give us more information, God, but to, to actually transform us, to make us more like Christ. And so we need you to work, and in a, a fresh way this morning, we commit this time to you. And we pray this all in your great name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, in our culture, we've all heard the famous expression, don't judge me, don't judge me. And I saw a picture this week that reminded me of the irony of that expression. It's a young boy, and he's saying, don't judge me, you judgmental judger. And uh, as one of my friends likes to say, every time he hears someone say, don't judge me, he says, well, don't judge me for judging you. And what that statement shows is that we can't, as human beings, live a life without judging. It's not possible. We are moral creatures made in God's image. And so the question is not, will you judge? The question is, how do you judge? How do you judge others? How do you judge yourself? And most importantly, how does God judge others? In particular, you. See the answers to those questions in our text. We're going to work through two main points. We're going to look at our hypocritical judgment and God's righteous judgment. If you're taking notes, it's our hypocritical judgment and God's righteous judgment. For our first main point, don't forget the context. In this section of Romans, Paul is making his case for why all of humanity is guilty before God and why faith in Jesus Christ is the only hope for salvation. He looked first at Gentile idol worshipers who suppress the knowledge of God that they have and instead give themselves fully over to sexual sin and ever-increasing moral rebellion and perversity. Now, these are people who sin in, in big external ways and then cheer on others to sin as well. And so Romans 1, it penetratingly describes the breakdown of society that happens as people surrender to their lust and live like this. It's easy for me to, to imagine the Roman church as they first heard this letter being read, nodding along, agreeing with Paul's assessment. There might have even been some loud amens as people were getting worked up about the devastation that sin brings. And yet, I think the, the entire room would have been completely silenced with the surprising turn that Paul takes in chapter 2. Listen to the first few verses again. Therefore... Every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Romans 2 is a master class in exposing the sin and idolatry of religious or moral people because after showing the gross wickedness of sexual immorality, Paul then turns to expose the gross wickedness of moral hypocrisy. And after engaging people's moral indignation in chapter 1, he brilliantly redirects any finger pointing back at the one doing the judging. Or as Pastor John Schreiner likes to say, every time you point your finger to judge someone else, you have three fingers pointing back at yourself. Don't miss the connecting phrase in verse 1. Paul says, those who judge 
are without excuse. This is the the same phrase used in Romans 1 to condemn those without the revelation of God's word because they still have the revelation of God's world. They still have creation, and so they are without excuse for their sin. In chapter 2, Paul skillfully shows that those who are religious or moral are equally guilty before God as those who dramatically reject his law. And so the, the playing field is suddenly leveled here by Paul. And the reason that all are without excuse is tucked in at the end of verse 1. Paul says, For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. The issue is judgmental hypocrisy. It's when externally moral and religious people condemn others, but they practice the very same things that they condemn. What things is Paul referring to? Well, listen to the list at the end of chapter 1 again and ask yourself how many of these things you can relate to in action or in attitude. Paul says they are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. I'm going to pull out just, I'm going to pull out just four of those descriptions for us to think about. Consider how easy it is to be greedy or to be envious of others, to be proud, to be unloving. I mean, how often do we fail to love other people the way that God calls us to? You know, we, we fall into those sins almost daily. At least we do internally. And the seriousness of internal sins, that was the main point that we looked at last week. That's one of the main points of this section. The heart of humanity's problem, it's a worship problem in our hearts. All of our sin, it starts, as, it starts inside us, in our heart, as a failure to give God glory and to give him thanks. And that's true for moral sinners and immoral sinners. If you ever try to comfort yourself with the fact that you've avoided big sins like murder or sexual sin, Jesus' words in Matthew 5 expose our hypocrisy even there. Jesus showed that murder, it begins in the heart. He said if you've lashed out in someone, if you've spoken angrily to someone, he says that you are worthy of hell. You're worthy of hell. And in the same way, if you've ever lusted for someone, Jesus says you've committed adultery with them in your heart. And when we understand that God doesn't just judge our behavior, he doesn't just judge the things on the outside, but he sees everything going on within, he sees our inner world, our hearts, it'll be clear we we are without excuse before him. We don't want to be judged for that. The issue Paul is pointing out here is our tendency as human beings to judge others harshly and then to judge ourselves generously. For example, when we lose our temper, it's not because we're an angry person. It's because we didn't get much sleep or things have been stressful recently or other people, they're so annoying. They're so inconsiderate. It's not me. It's the circumstances. But then when someone else is angry, especially towards us, we tend to assume the problem is with them. The the problem is with their character. And one of the the best illustrations of this in, in Scripture is King David. Remember when he slept with Bathsheba? Then he got her pregnant, and then he sent one of his most loyal soldiers off to his death. And when the prophet Nathan came to him, he tells him the story of a, a poor man, and the most precious thing this poor man has is one little lamb. 
It's his only valuable possession in his life. And there's a rich man with whole flocks of sheep. And this rich man comes when he has a visitor, and he doesn't want to kill one of his own sheep, so he goes to this poor man, and he takes the sheep. The only thing he has, he takes that and kills it to serve to his visitor. And David is enraged. He's so angry. He says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan turns around, and he says, you are that man. You're that man. How often when we get angry at other people, does God look at us and say, you are that man. You are that woman. We judge others, and in the process, we condemn ourselves. The saying goes, our sin always looks worse on someone else. Isn't that true? Our sin, it always looks worse on someone else than we think it does on us. And this is what makes hypocrisy so pathetic. It's obviously inconsistent. It's grossly inconsistent. Verses two through three show the double standard of hypocrites. They believe other sin is worthy of God's judgment, but their sin isn't. They even want God to judge other people's sins, but don't think that their sins should be. Here's one helpful thought for you from these verses. Everyone is guilty before God, and not just God. Everyone is guilty before their own standards. We often talk about how we're guilty before God, but this passage shows we're guilty just based on our very own standards. You know, Francis Schaeffer, he has a, a famous illustration to prove this. He called it the invisible tape recorder illustration. Now, most of you uh, have probably never, most of you who are younger than me have probably never seen a tape recorder before, so I, I found a picture of one here. And the nifty thing you could do with this is you could push a button and record what people said. <laughs> you could record what was going on around you. To modernize this, uh, it would just be like a smartphone. <laughs> and uh, imagine if your smartphone recorded everything you said, listened to everything you said. It's probably hard to imagine that. <laughs> but specifically, what if it listened to every moral statement you ever made? It kept track of every moral statement you made. Statements like, you shouldn't be selfish. You shouldn't lie. You know, you should help the needy. It's wrong to gossip. Schaefer points out that if we were judged by our own standards alone, we would be guilty thousands and thousands of times over in our life for not living up to our own standards. If our own fallen sense of right and wrong condemns us, how much more do we deserve to be condemned when we stand before a perfectly holy and perfectly righteous God? That's what Paul wants us to feel here. Now, before we move on to the next verse, let me remind you that Paul is not instructing Christians here to never judge between right and wrong personally or even in evaluating the decision of others. And this is obvious because Paul has just clearly judged a whole list of sins in verses 29 through 31 of chapter 1. So he's just judged all kinds of sin. You could say Paul is being judgmental in this section. And so the issue here. Again, it's not making moral judgments. It's doing it in a hypocritical way. Now, Jesus, he, he puts this so well, comedically, in fact, in Matthew 7. He says, when you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye. He says, why do you do that? Jesus says, why do you do that? And to help you think about just how ridiculous it is, imagine I walk up to you and say, why do you have that sawdust in your eye? 
and this is sticking out of my own. Like, hey, let me help you. Come here. I think you have, you have a speck of sawdust. And you'd say, what, are, what is wrong with you? That is so ridiculous. And Paul's trying to say, that's what happens when we hypocritically judge others. It's so ridiculous. But Jesus, he goes on. He doesn't say, never judge. He says, hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. The idea is that we should never act as the ultimate judge of anyone. That's Jesus' role. We don't, we don't judge anyone's soul. That's what Jesus is going to do. But at the same time, as Christians, we must judge between right and wrong. In our own life, in society, we have to do that, but we have to learn to do it based off of his word, and we need to learn to deal with our own sin first before hypocritically judging others. Now, this brings us to verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? This verse is jarring because it shows that it's possible for you and it's possible for me to despise God's kindness. Have you ever thought about that before? How do we despise God's kindness? There are at least two ways that I can think of. The first is when we assume that we need less of God's kindness than other big sinners. Now, if if you understand idolatry, like we looked at last week in Romans 1, you'll see that is the default setting of human beings. And even for us as Christians, so often we're slipping back into idolatry. We We so rarely worship God from our heart in what we are doing. And so Christians, we can resonate with the statement, I am the worst sinner I know. We can resonate with that because we can see our inner world. I can't see your inner world. I can see mine. I can see the dysfunction there. I can see the sinfulness there. But at the same time, even though I I can agree with that statement, at the same time, I still find myself regularly hypocritically judging others. I think for Christians, it's actually a major temptation. As God begins to change our life, we can can slip into this self-righteousness. We have a sense of superiority that maybe we don't sin in ways that we used to or maybe that other people struggle with. It is easy to get caught in that ugly trap. But the more we follow Christ, the more he's going to expose that. The more he's going to call that out in us. And I'm so thankful for that because if I didn't know Christ, that is just where I would live. That, I would just be a Pharisee. That, that is just where I would, I would be at. I would be a Romans 2 type of person. And so one way we despise God's precious kindness towards us is to proudly assume, I don't need it as much as some of those other big sinners. Second, we despise God's kindness when we use it as an excuse for sin. God in his kindness does not instantly judge sinners for our sin, because if he did, we would all be dead. God, he has been incredibly rich in his kindness to us, and that's proved just by the fact that we're all still alive, that you're all still here. shows that God has been kind to you. Now, the wrong way to respond to that kindness is to justify our sin. It's, it's, it's wrong to assume God doesn't hate sin as much as he says he does. It's not as destructive as God's word says that it is. That's the wrong way to respond. The appropriate response to the riches of God's kindness is not to excuse sin. It's to repent of it. It's to repent. 
It's to acknowledge not just that my behavior is wrong. It's not just to ask for forgiveness for our behavior. It's to ask God to change us, to change the source of issue on the inside. One takeaway from this section before we, before we move on is that good people, they need the gospel just as much as bad people. I'm putting that in quotes, but that, the idea is that religious people need the gospel just as much as unreligious people. Respected citizens need the gospel just as much as criminals. And this is the offense of the gospel. It's not that, that the Bible says some people are bad and need a savior. That's not offensive. What's offensive is that the Bible says that we are all so sinful and lost that we have no hope of saving ourselves, no matter how hard we try. This brings us to our second main point, God's righteous judgment. God's righteous judgment. Verse five, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. The phrase, your hardened and unrepentant heart, it keeps focusing our attention back on the heart. And it makes it obvious that, that Paul views moralism or religious effort as a form of idolatry. I don't know if you've thought about that before. Now, some people, they look to life from sex and money and fame. Those are idols in their life that they look to to find satisfaction and security, significance. But we can do the same thing with morality or with religious devotion. See, some people, they feel more secure. They manage their guilt by being a rule keeper, by being a religious person or a moral person. Now, others, they, they find their identity in being a respected member of a church. That's where they find their significance. Other people look up to me. Other people think that I have my, my act together. Now, if we do that, it is just as much a rejection of God and the gospel as deliberately breaking his commands. Because when we build our identity on our own attempts to be good, our soul is clearly communicating to God, I don't need you. I don't need you to save me. I can save myself. It struck me this week that the very first time in Romans that Paul mentions the day of wrath or the final judgment where God's full hatred of sin is going to be revealed, it's not in the context of sexual immorality. It's in the context of religious hypocrisy. Isn't that sobering? And we said last week, God takes sexual sin much more seriously than we do. But we see here in Romans 2, that God takes moral hypocrisy much more seriously than we do as well. And he is going to judge it. God will judge it. But notice the contrast between our judgment and God's at the end of verse 5. At the end of verse 5, it talks about the, the day of wrath is going to be when God's righteous judgment is revealed. God's righteous judgment Human beings, our, our judgment is hypocritical. It's inconsistent and biased. But God's judgment is perfectly righteous and just. It's perfectly calibrated to what each person deserves. And this, is, this theme is continued through verse 11, which says that God does not show favoritism. I have a picture here of, of Lady, Lady Justice. Many of you are familiar with this. And she has a blindfold on. And that's to illustrate that, that justice should be blind. Each person should get what they deserve. And in judgment, it shouldn't be influenced based on how much money someone has, how attractive they are, what race somebody is, how popular or how famous they are. Now, as human beings, our judgment 
our evaluation, it's always, it's always limited because of our limited knowledge. And as Paul points out here, because of our biases as well. But what he's saying is that on the day of judgment, justice is going to be finally revealed perfectly. It's going to be fully given out. But the question in this section is, what is God's righteous judgment based on? What's God's righteous judgment based on? I want you to listen very closely to verses 6 through 8, because this, is, this section is confusing to many Christians. Paul says, He will repay each one according to his works. This is his clarification of God's righteous judgment. What's that look like? He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. At first glance, Paul appears to be saying that our good works save us. Isn't that what it sounds like? Have you ever read this before and been like, what is Paul, what's Paul saying here? This seems to go directly against the rest of Romans. And Paul was clear in Romans 1 that we're saved by faith, not by works. He's even more clear about that in chapter 3. So what in the world is Paul saying in chapter 2? What's Paul saying here? Well, we must keep in mind that Paul's primary point in this section is God's righteous judgment versus our hypocritical judgment. God's judgment is just, and he shows no partiality. So therefore, Paul, he's not explaining how Christians are saved, but how God's judgment is shown to be righteous and just on the day of God's wrath. Like James 2, this section does not deal with the source of our salvation, but the signs that someone has genuinely been saved. In other words, it's about the fruit of salvation, not the foundation of it. Let me give you a summary to try and avoid confusion, and then, then I will attempt to prove it from the text. Tim Keller, about these very verses, he says, Good works show we have saving faith, but they do not add to our faith in saving us. That is so important. Good works, they show we have saving faith, but they don't add anything at all to our faith in saving us. And this is the message of Romans. This is the message of the whole Bible and it's clear that that is what this passage means when we consider a few factors. First, the whole Bible, both Old Testament and New, it's filled with similar, similar language that God is going to repay each person according to their works. There's dozens and dozens of verses that state that. Let me show you just two examples from the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.10, written primarily to believers. Paul also there says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In Revelation 20, the very last chapter of the Bible, Jesus himself says, look, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. When we stand before God, we will be repaid based on our works, whether we're Christians or unbelievers. Now that, that is probably doesn't compute with some of you. And we're all, I'm going I'm to work through that. And I want to do that by first pointing out that Romans 2, the statement that God, he, he is going to repay each for their work. That's a quote from Psalm 62. He's quoting Psalm 62, verse 12. And when you read that psalm, it is very enlightening. It's a good practice in general when you see a quote from the Old Testament and the New to go back to the Old Testament. Look at the context. And Psalm 
chapter 62, it compares two groups of people. One is plotting against King David. They're lying. They're also, they're also flattering him. They bless him with their words, but David says inwardly they curse. They're like the people in Romans 2. They say one thing and they do another. The second group finds rest in God alone. It's highlighted by verses 5 through 7. David says, rest in God alone, my soul, for my hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, stronghold, I will not be shaken. My salvation and glory depend on God. My strong rock, my refuge is in God. This group, they didn't contribute anything at all to their salvation by their works. God alone is their salvation. Their, their salvation, it depends on him. It depends on God, not on their works. And so this shows the source of their salvation. But then the very last verse says that God will repay each according to their works. And so this psalm assumes what the whole Bible assumes, which is that those whose hope and faith are in God, they're going to live differently than those who don't trust in him. Faith is going to be shown in how we live. Martin Luther, he famously said that we're saved by faith alone, but true faith is never alone. And the context of that is good works. He's saying we're saved by faith alone, not by good works at all, but true faith, it will always produce good works. And one simple way to, to think about this is imagine that I told you I have a million dollars in my trunk for you. I have a million dollars in my trunk. All of you, you understand what I'm saying. You might nod and say, okay, great. Now, one look at me, and you probably think there's no way this guy has a million dollars. And if you saw my car, you would definitely not think that I have a million dollars. My, my, my Toyota Corolla, not in the best shape. You look at me, you're like, no chance. You understand what I'm saying? But if you believed it, what would you do? You'd stop everything else you're doing, and you would go get your million dollars if you actually believed it. And the promises of the gospel are way more impressive, way more important than the, the idea of getting a million dollars. Jesus, he taught the same thing in his ministry, that faith, it's going to change the way that we live. In John chapter 5, he said that everyone's going to be resurrected at his return, and he puts every single person in one of two camps. He says there, there are those who do good things, he says, those who do good things, they are going to go to the resurrection of life, but those who do wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. So just like Paul does in verses 9 and 10 in Romans 2, Jesus puts everyone in two camps, those who practice good, those who practice evil. This is similar to Matthew 25, where the day of judgment is described. And King Jesus, he separates everyone into two camps. Remember that? There's the sheep and there's the goats. Now, when I was younger, it confused me so much that the only criteria Jesus used to judge people was the way that they had treated other Christians who were in need. Have you ever noticed that before? In Matthew 25, Jesus doesn't say anything about faith in him. What he does is what Paul is describing here. His judgment is based on people's works. It's based on what they have done. Now, it's based on works in the sense that each person is repaid for their works. But there's a dividing line before that. He separates everyone based off whether they're sheep or goats before their works are evaluated. There's an identity issue that's established by the gospel before this judgment of works. But again, the, the point 
is that this is going to be seen by how we live. And so all of this, it makes perfect sense if you realize that Jesus taught salvation changes people. Salvation is a gift, but if you're saved, it's going to, to produce a love for God and a love for others, especially other believers that you did not have before. Even the motivation is going to be different. Non-believers can do good things, but, but God looks at the heart. In the language of Romans 1, non-believers, they don't do things for God's glory. They, they don't do things to, to give him thanks. And perhaps Jesus' parable of fruit trees in Matthew 12 illustrates this section in Romans 2 the best. You know, Jesus said that a tree is recognized by its fruit. And so good trees, they produce good fruit. Bad trees, they produce bad fruit. And in Jesus' teaching, the type of tree represents someone's heart, and the fruit represents their works. And that's because our, our works, they always flow from our heart. They flow from what we worship. And so you can think about it this way. How do people judge a tree? How do people judge a tree? Well, we do it based on the fruit, right? If you're like me, most of us, if you just take me to a, some random fruit tree, tell me, tell me to identify it, if there's no fruit on it, I'm in big trouble. But if you take me to a tree and it's loaded up with a bunch of apples, then I'm going to be okay. I can tell you, that is an apple tree, and I'm very confident because it's full of apples. If you take me to a tree and it's covered with oranges, I can tell you, that is an orange tree. I don't know a lot. That's an orange tree because it has oranges. Now, does an apple on a tree make that tree an apple tree? Is that, the, is that the thing that actually makes it an apple tree? No. No. That The fruit is merely the outward sign of an inward reality. It's the outward sign of an inward reality. One commentator, he put it this way. The apples on an apple tree prove life, but they don't provide it. The apples are the evidence that the apple tree is alive, but the roots are what pull in the nourishment to keep it that way. In the same way, so note this, faith in Christ alone provides new life. He gives his righteousness, the righteousness of God, to anyone who believes. But a changed life of righteousness is what proves we have real faith. This is what you have to see. This is what you can't miss. Romans is written to prove that we're saved by faith alone in Christ. The only way to stand, stand before God and to be declared righteous is by receiving the gift of righteousness. It's by receiving God's grace. And this isn't a semantics thing. I've had conversations before where the thought is, you think that you're saved by faith alone in Christ, and then that changes how you live. I think that you're saved by faith and good works. Isn't it basically the same thing? Isn't, at the end of the day, isn't it the same thing? No. It is fundamentally different. Because if you say, I believe I'm saved by, by belief and good works, you don't actually trust in Christ for your salvation. Your faith is in you. Your faith is in how you've lived. What the Bible teaches is that when someone gets to a point where they recognize my only hope is Jesus Christ and what he's done, if you put your hope there, what happens is that God will change you. God will begin to change you. Your life will begin to change because God is working on the inside. The heart is made new. This is what Paul describes just at the end of this chapter. In chapter 2, this is where he's heading in his argument. Paul describes this as the circumcision of the heart. For a Christian, the very nature of the heart 
changes when they trust in Christ. And this is what guarantees that every single believer, they're going to see a change in their life because God changes their desires. God is changing them on the inside. This is why Paul can say that God will repay the works of believers and non-believers. It's because attitudes, actions, and words truly are different between the two over time. Now, this does not mean that believers are perfect. It doesn't mean that. But like verse 7 indicates, believers do persevere by faith in doing good. That's one of the, the signs throughout the New Testament of genuine belief is there's a perseverance in it. And there's a new motivation, it says. They persevere in doing good. Why? Because they're seeking glory, honor, and immortality. They're, th- they're seeking things that only come from God's grace. Things that non-Christians don't care about. The other group that's listed, listed, it's those who don't know Christ. And because they don't know Christ, they're self-seeking. They're not seeking his glory. They're not seeking life from him. They're self-seeking and disobey the truth. Now, this section, what Paul does is so important because he helps us to navigate two dangerous lies, two lies from the pit of hell. And the first is one we talk about often, which is that you can earn your salvation. You can earn your salvation. That's what people by default believe. That's what almost all religions teach. And all of Romans says, no, not a chance. You cannot earn your salvation. But there's another lie on the other side. It's very common in our culture. Some people call it easy believism. And it's the idea that you can be saved and not changed. You can be saved and not changed. God is so forgiving. I believe in God. God's forgiving. I'm a Christian. And I'm going to keep living exactly how I've always lived. I'm going to continue to be God of my own life. The only way to navigate between those two lies is to recognize what salvation is. If you think that salvation is just a free ticket into heaven, this section won't make sense. This section won't compute. But if you understand that the Bible says salvation is to know God, you can be born again into a relationship with God where he comes in, the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to change you on the inside, then this section makes perfect sense. You could never deserve that. You could never earn that. But if you have it, It can't not change you. It will change you. Not everything completely overnight, but it will begin to change you because the inside has been changed. The nature of our heart has been changed. A question to ask yourself then from this passage is, has faith in Jesus Christ changed your life? Has faith in Christ, has it it changed you? Has it changed any of your desires? Has it changed any of what you want in life? any of the ways that you make decisions and go about your relationships. I just read this morning in 2 Corinthians 13, not planning on connecting it with this, but Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. If you look at your life and there's no change that comes because you've professed in Christ, what the Bible says, I don't think, what the Bible tells you, you need to actually turn to Christ. You need to actually receive salvation. Romans 2.11 is a, a comforting but also terrifying verse. It says there is no favoritism with God. It's comforting because we know he's going to do exactly what he says. He's completely reliable, but it's terrifying in the sense that that God is not going to show you any special treatment if you reject his grace. There won't won't be any special treatment for those who, who reject his grace. You will be judged. You will be repaid according to your works. 
And so to try and pull this together, the main point of this section is that God's righteous judgment, it's displayed by how he impartially repays each person according to their works. That's the big point. But there's an obvious question that I bet many of you are like, it's like exploding in your head and in your soul. What about our sin? What about our sin? If God repaid us for our sin, don't we deserve hell? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Even as Christians, none of us deserve Christ. We are, we're not worthy of eternal life. If God repaid us for all of our sin, we would deserve hell along with the rest of humanity. And that's why the gospel is such good news. What the gospel tells us is that Jesus has already been paid, or Jesus has already paid for your sin. What your sin deserves, Jesus was already judged for it on the cross. Perhaps the best place that explains this is Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation 20, it describes the final judgment when all of us stand before Christ, and it says two books are opened. One book, it says it records everyone's works. The way you've lived, everything you've done, inside, outside, it's recorded there. But there's a second book that's open, and that's the book, it says, of the Lamb's, the Lamb's book of life. And that book, that determines your identity. Are you a sheep or a goat? Do you belong to Christ by faith in him, or are you, are you a goat? Have you rejected him? And if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, but because of faith in him, faith in his blood, then all of the, the sinful work that you've done, it's already been paid for. It's already been dealt with by Christ. And what this means, if you're a Christian, is that you don't owe God for your sin. It's, it has already been judged by God. It's been, the judgment has been poured out on Christ. Instead of you, it's been, it's been paid for at the cross. And because we're united to Christ, there's no sin left to pay for. It would actually be unjust of God, if you're a Christian, to punish you for your sinful works because they've already been dealt with by our Savior. Now, if you are a Christian, you don't have to fear God's judgment. But the righteous God, he came and he died in our place to give us righteousness, to give us his very own righteousness and to begin to help us to live righteously. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it was written to Christians and in it, Paul explains why he doesn't care much for how people judge him, why he doesn't even care much about how he judges himself. And it helps to sum up how Christians should think about God repaying us for our works. Again, this section is written to Christians. He says, So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then punishment will come. Oh, wait. And then praise will come to each one from God. Isn't that incredible? If you're a Christian, all of your sinful works have already been paid. And so when you stand before God, you won't be punished for your works of sin. You will be praised by King Jesus for your works of faith. Isn't that incredible? Instead of punishment, you'll receive praise. Every act of love based off of faith in Christ, it will be rewarded forever. It will be remembered forever by our Savior. This is good news. This is why the gospel is good news for people who sin, for Christians who sin. And just to close, my point of application for us is let the gospel teach you how to judge. Let the gospel teach you how to judge. 
We all judge all the time. We're going to judge. We need to let God change the way we judge. We need to change the way we judge others. See, the gospel teaches us that sin is serious. We can be serious about sin. There is sin in the world. There is sin in people's lives. And we can, we can stand with God on what he says. But at the same time, the gospel teaches us we should never feel superior to anyone else because we are sinners. We deserve God's judgment. God's forgiven us. He's accepted us, not because of anything we've done, but because of his grace. And so we can, we can judge sin. We can recognize sin is serious and not have a self-righteous attitude that is so poisonous, so contrary to the gospel. The gospel should change the way that we judge us. If you're like me, I can be scared sometimes of looking inside because there's so much dysfunction there. There's so much sin still inside me. There's so much pride. There's so much insecurity. There's so much selfishness. And what the gospel does is it proves God already knows it and he's dealt with it. It's forgiven. And so we can be honest about our sin. We can be open about it with others. And not only is it forgiven, but as we expose our sin, as we're honest about it, we can experience that God has the power to change us. He has the power to change us and change our character, to change our inner world. Last, we should let the gospel change the way that we judge God. All of us, we, we have ways that we think about God. We have ways that we judge God. And this passage shows us that God is rich in kindness, not just towards Christians, but to, towards unbelievers as well. And if you know God, then not only is he rich in kindness, he's infinite in grace towards you. There'll be grace for you for all of eternity. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you have dealt with our sinful works. And Lord, we thank you that salvation is a gift, that we won't be judged, not for our sinful works, but we will, we will be honored by you for our imperfect attempts to obey you, to trust you. God, I, I pray for us, Lord. I pray for this room. If there's anyone here who's never repented, who's never, who's never recognized that they deserve your wrath, that they, they can't be right with you, I pray, God, that even now you would draw them to repentance. Help them turn to you. Help them trust in you and let you change them on the inside to give them a new, a new heart, a new desire for you. And God, for those of us who do know you, help us to be quicker to repent. Help us to hate sin and to be quick to bring our sin to the light. And I pray that we would be people who our family and our, our friends, our Southside community, they would see that we're changing. They'd see the, the real power of the gospel to transform our lives. And so, God, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for how relevant your word is, and we trust you to, to speak to each one of us exactly where we're at. Amen. Okay. Well, we're going to continue the service now uh, with offering and with communion. And offering is a chance for us to trust God. It's a chance for us to thank God for how he's provided for us. And so if you would like to, to give back to the gospel ministry here at Walnut Creek Church, you can do that uh, either online or also uh, in the box in the back. As far as communion, this is our opportunity with the, the bread and the cup, which represent, represent Jesus' body and blood. This is our opportunity each week, not just to celebrate what Christ did to save us, but according to Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, it's also a time for self-examination. So we, our lives often are busy. It's easy to run through a week. And communion, it gives us a few minutes just to reflect, 
God wants us to stop and just reflect. And often if you do, you'll see areas where, where we've gotten distracted, idols that uh, we've given into during the week. And if you recognize that, this is the perfect time to confess those and thank God for his grace, experience his, his grace in a fresh way and ask him for his nourishment, ask him, ask him for his help to trust him and walk with him through the week, to have greater victory in that area. Communion, it is, it is for believers. And at Walnut Creek, we believe the best practice is for uh, people to be baptized before taking communion. That is not a, a strict policy. And so this time we're going to have a, an usher come forward and we'll uh, dismiss by rows and we'll have some time just to, to spend with the Lord, to pray before we close in a final song.